Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Made in Finland, Freedom of the Seas was the world's largest ship when it first set sail in 2006. There's room on board for more than 4,000 passengers, and the 1,300-strong crew needed to keep them happy 24-7. On deck, there's a three-story water slide, a surf simulator, and of course, crazy golf. When the Caribbean sun gets a bit much, there's an ice rink down below. This week, the Freedom of the Seas became the first cruise ship to set sail from Miami in 15 months. For now, the only people unleashing any lingering lockdown tension at the laser tag are employees of the Royal Caribbean Cruise Company and their families. It's a test voyage. The paying customers booked onto a sister ship, the Odyssey of the Seas, will get refunds after eight crew members tested positive for COVID. Despite the setback, Royal Caribbean share price continues to inch back to pre-pandemic levels. It's a familiar story of expectation and frustration as the vast American economy refloats. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how has the pandemic reshaped the American economy? As the country reopens, businesses are having trouble hiring, even as millions remain unemployed. New business creation is at record levels, and there's upward pressure on wages for the first time in decades. How might this unusual recovery change the political landscape? In this episode, we'll find out what's going on in the labor market, look back to when the power of American workers was at its peak, and hear the concerns of President Obama's former chief economist, Jason Furman. With me to discuss all of this are The Economist's US digital editor, John Fasman, and our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddoes. This is a special episode for a couple of reasons. One is that we are all in the same room in Washington, D.C., which is something that hasn't happened for a long time. Uh, and we have Zanny with us. Zanny, you're in normal times a frequent visitor to the US. Like me, you know, you have an anchor baby. You haven't been back for a bit. What have your impressions been about how the place has changed since you've been away? Well, first of all, I am delighted to join you, delighted to gatecrash this podcast and thrilled like you to be in the US. Yeah, it's my first trip here since February 2020. So a long time. Uh, it it was great. I haven't been sort of so giddy about getting on an aeroplane to cross the Atlantic uh, for a very long time. I had two and a half days in New York. I'm now in DC. I have found the first thing I've, I've met my colleagues. I've met new colleagues who've joined us. We've had meetings in person. It's just been all of this is such a treat. Uh, I think the country 
is really putting COVID behind it. And a bit of me is thinking, oh, my God, can this be for real? But it feels like a country that is not just opening up, but a kind of a, a coil unspringing, if you will. It's amazing. And, and I, I've already told you this because I, I knew as a guitar player you'd like it. But I was in, in New York and I went to, to Brooklyn and I listened to Steve Earle playing live in a restaurant patio in Brooklyn. That's it was fantastic. just extraordinary. So I've had an I'm on a complete high. So anybody want any you know pay increases? This is this is the week to do it. Say so I'm on a high too. I mean we've been reading things for the past year about how big cities are in decline and people are fleeing New York. Like you, I went wandering around the city. On, actually, on Tuesday I went for a walk with Charlotte Howard, our much missed co-host, who regular listeners will be pleased to know is doing very well post baby. And we walked around Lower Manhattan, and one of the things we came across was a live bluegrass concert happening in a pharmacist. And I thought, you know, who would not want to live in a place where stuff like that happens? Fazman, how's your week been? It's good. I'm inclined to ask for a raise on air in <laughs> Danny's good mood, but I'm very well. The week has been good. I've been between New York and Washington as well. Um, I'm glad to hear that things feel like they're picking up to an outsider because they certainly do to us. There have even been some signs of progress in Congress on the on the infrastructure bill. You'll have seen Biden and a group of bipartisan senators just reached a verbal agreement on a plan. That has a long way to go, but it's an encouraging it's an encouraging sign. All right. Let's get into this by zeroing in on the labour market, parts of which are also a bit giddy. Um, there's been some frustration among employers and some Republican politicians that as the economy bounces back, vacancies are remaining unfilled, while unemployment is still high. There have also been significant wage increases, which is you know, the good part of the story. Ryan Avent writes the free exchange column for The Economist. He's a keen observer of the US economy. So I asked him to help us understand what's going on. There are about 9 million job openings in the U.S. right now, which is roughly the same number of people as are currently counted as unemployed. So basically, there's one job opening for every unemployed person in the U.S., which would seem to suggest that if we could just get them together, the unemployment problem could be solved right away. But that's not exactly what we're seeing. It's kind of a weird period all around. A lot of firms went out of business during the pandemic, and so it's not just a matter of companies instantly rehiring. It's also, in some cases, firms that are just getting themselves off the ground. Uh, and then there may be other obstacles as well that are throwing sand in the gears. There uh, are some concerns that the generosity of unemployment benefits may be discouraging workers from seeking jobs. There's still a lot of workers out there who probably are, are kind of nervous about going back to work. The virus still is still out there. New variants are out there. And then there's also issues related to childcare. If you're someone who's, who's been stuck at home taking care of kids who weren't in school, you can't necessarily find care. That makes it difficult for you to go back in the labour market. And we've talked about unemployment and job openings. We haven't talked so much about wages. And there, the picture seems pretty great at the moment, particularly for non-college educated Americans who've seen downward pressure on their wages for, for a long time, owing to you know, big structural changes that you've been writing about for, for a long time, you know, globalisation, the China effect, technology in particular. It would be really nice to believe that there's some fundamental change going on here that is going to benefit non-college educated Americans. Do you think that's happening or is that just way too optimistic a read of the data currently? I mean, I think it's okay to be optimistic. It's hard to really look through a lot of the, the temporary factors and, and, and sort of see where we are long term and probably... Some of the big structural effects, you know, that you mentioned that have, have been a drag on worker bargaining power and pay for a long time are, are still going to be there post pandemic. But we may be seeing some some restructuring happening, some 
uh, industries that uh, were on the ascent prior to the pandemic or that got a boost from the pandemic, like home delivery, that kind of thing, that that end up on a permanent basis representing a larger share of employment uh, while others take a structural hit. And I, I think some of what we're seeing in terms of the slowness of hiring is about this you know, it's an open question and markets are trying to sort it out. So some firms will be able to raise wages, pay workers more and retain them more because their businesses are on the up and up because they're more productive. And that's a healthy thing. But what it means on the other side is that there are firms out there that can't hire enough workers at the wages they're willing to pay. To them, it's going to look like there are all sorts of obstacles holding the recovery back, maybe in policy. But really what's happening is just that you know, unfortunately, they're kind of on the losing end of this restructuring, which I think on the whole is going to set the U.S. economy up to be in a good place to be more productive, uh, maybe a little bit more robust for future shocks like this. And there's more from Ryan on this week's Money Talks podcast, our sister show on the world of business, where he compares economic theory and Charles Darwin's ideas on natural selection. You'll find Money Talks wherever you're listening to this one. Sani, let's start with you. What do you make of this apparent paradox or puzzle that you've got rising wages for non-college Americans, you've got high unemployment and lots of job openings? I mean, those things ought not really to go together. So, So what's your read on what's going on here? Well, you're right. It is pretty unusual. It's very different to recent recoveries. And I think Ryan put it pretty well. The honest answer is we just don't know. I haven't I can't remember a time when so many economic commentators are kind of scratching their heads and coming up with theses, but no one really knows. There are a lot of temporary things going on. So we are, you know, we have had a huge boost, a huge stimulus boost, a huge boost to demand. We're coming back from a very unusual recession. I mean, the entire economy was forced to shut down very quickly. So a large number of people were temporarily unemployed. That meant that they could come back very quickly last year. But now we're coming to people who who want to to change jobs or, or who are longer term unemployed. And we also have some big structural changes going on. And we've 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 talked about them. We've talked about them on this show. You know, people are reevaluating their lives. Technology has actually dramatically changed the way we work. And, and interesting, you know, there was a lot of talk about robots taking people's jobs. In fact, I think we're now seeing technology making life much nicer for many workers. So structural shifts to get into economist jargon, policy mixed with the nature of the recovery each of those points in different directions. So we just really don't know. And the, the challenge, I think, is that people are going to form hypotheses. They really already are. Some people say it's all the Biden stimulus. Uh, they're going to kind of, they'll set in stone those hypotheses and, and, you know, three, four, five months down the line, we'll see what's really going on. Is it useful to think of what we just went through as a recession? I'm asking because you were here in 2008, you covered the Great Recession. That was a different beast, it seems. It seems that what we've just been through is something akin to a natural disaster, right? Where there's a huge exogenous shock on the economy that wiped out demand. And then afterward, things, they're not back to where they were. If anything, they seem to be poised to be more more robust. What do you expect to see as we come out of this? You're right. The nature of the shock was very different. The economy in effect, suffered a heart attack or it was sort of put under cardiac arrest. It was forcibly shut down uh, and so is bouncing back much more quickly than, you know, after the great financial crisis. Remember, there was the whole talk about slow recoveries because these were very different. This was a balance sheet recession in the financial crisis. But the other big difference has been policy. Money has been poured into the US economy. The scale of stimulus relative to after the financial crisis is just transformatively different. So we've got a different kind of economic event, very different. And we've got a very different kind of policy response. Does that suggest lessons 
for how to deal with recessions. That is, if we the next time we suffer a balance sheet recession or a credit crisis, should we be more ready to pour money into the economy? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that it depends on what happens in the US in the next year or so. If we have a roaring recovery and not much inflation, the playbook for policymakers will be changed. It will be, as you say, deal with recessions by pouring fiscal stimulus, pouring monetary stimulus. But if, and this really is a risk, and and too many people, I think, don't pay enough attention to it, if actually we have, you know, what is temporary inflation turns into something more serious, the lesson will be, actually, that's absolutely not the way to go. So the jury's out. I'm struck by what you said about technology opening up new opportunities for workers here. I mean, this is anecdote, but three of my good friends in New York have started new businesses during lockdown. And they're all sort of white collar, sort of brain work type businesses. And we've gone for a world where in order to impress potential clients, you had to have an office and you had to do business travel. There were lots of upfront costs. And now all those have disappeared, right? It's become totally normal to pitch clients on a Zoom call. You don't need an office. You can work with colleagues spread all around the world with with no problem. And we've got an article in this week's Economist about the pace of new business creation in the US, which is stunningly high at the moment. And so it does feel like something there is really shifting. Absolutely. And it's also changing where people are in the country, because the other big impact is that you can start this business somewhere completely different. And so in addition to what's going on in the labour market, the other really kind of amazing shifts are in the housing market. Two of our colleagues were in Oregon, where house prices are completely soaring. Uh, you know, that change from city to suburb to from big cities to smaller ones, there's a huge shift going on there, enabled again by technology. What are the icebergs we're missing? I mean, we're sailing full speed ahead. What are, what are the pitfalls? What are we not paying enough attention to aside from inflation? Well, inflation on both sides, right? So you, you, we, we, I think there is too little worrying about inflation. That doesn't mean that I'm a massive great hawk, but that's one. The second is that, you know, this is all a, a sort of stimulus-driven sugar high and the underlying weaknesses in the US economy are still there. Thirdly, that, you know, the technology shift does it really increase productivity? Um, and we don't know that yet. Uh, it may just be that people are thinking after this extraordinary year, I want a different kind of life. And that's okay, you can do it when you're still flush with savings. But actually, it turns out to be much harder. So there are, and, and it comes after a couple of decades of, you know, really, really tough times in certain sectors. And then if you want to go deeper, homelessness, the education system, and don't forget that a lot of people were hit incredibly hard. And I think one thing is is really bad in the US, which is the amount of time that kids were out of school and therefore kind of long-term hits to what economists call the supply side, you yeah. know, education impact. So there are a lot of icebergs. Um, but I am, I'm struck by just how much of an impact a really vigorous recovery has. I mean, the, the sort of sense of possibility that people have and all these things we've been talking about is very palpable in the US. And that's an opportunity that needs to be grabbed. Yeah, and it also feels like a moment where the narrative around the American worker has changed. You know, warehouse wages and Amazon going up, some pretty significant wage increases. We'll find out when the power of the American worker last peaked in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, you're missing out. Signing up's really easy. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Our special report this week decodes the Chinese Communist Party. We also analyze some big decisions in the U.S. Supreme Court, and our Europe columnist feeds our collective fascination with Belgium. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
Americans, I now have the opportunity and pleasure to present to you a great American, Walter Ruther, President of the United Automobile Workers of America. The March on Washington in 1963 is remembered for Martin Luther King's vision of racial equality. But a key ally of King's, and a speaker that day, was in the midst of realizing a dream of his own. I am here today with you because with you I share the view that the struggle for civil rights and the struggle for equal opportunity is not the struggle of Negro Americans, but the struggle for every American to join in. Walter Ruther ran America's most powerful union, and by the mid-60s, it used that power to secure for American workers a bigger slice of the country's prosperity than they'd had before or since. And I believe that they cannot and should not wait until some distant tomorrow. They should demand freedom now, here and now. Ruther moved to Detroit aged 19 to work for Ford. He became a skilled tool and die maker. President Franklin Roosevelt's labor laws began to alter the balance of power at the big car plants in Michigan during the Depression. Images of Ruther and his fellow workers being beaten by Henry Ford's henchmen during a 1937 strike shifted public opinion. Ford was forced to recognize the United Auto Workers. Ruther led the UAW in Detroit at the start of World War II. He caught Roosevelt's attention with a promise not to strike and a plan to build 500 planes a day. But Ruther didn't fit the template of a union boss. He didn't smoke or drink and enrolled in college. He also saw his job as much more than negotiating higher wages. As soon as war ended, he set about using his new influence to drag Detroit's workers into the middle class. Well, we have proposed profit sharing because we believe this is the most effective way to expand purchasing power. And purchasing power is the key to the economic future of the American economy. Ruther would focus his demands on one of the big three car firms, GM, Chrysler, Ford. When the company pushed back, it shut it down and let the other two absorb lost sales. And we believe that workers, consumers and farmers are being shortchanged and that they are not getting their fair share. He secured profit sharing, annual raises, health and employment benefits and early retirement. Unheard of concessions that fulfilled Ruther's vision of the American worker free to enjoy the rewards of his labor. Free labor and free management have a great deal more in common than they have in conflict. And I believe that freedom is an indivisible value, that you can't have free labor without free management, and that we both need to learn to work and cooperate together to preserve our free society in a free world. Ruther made enemies, of course. Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater judged him a bigger threat to America than Sputnik. In truth, Ruther was an anti-communist who struggled with the Union's militant wing. He survived an assassination attempt, shot in the arm through his kitchen window. Walter Ruther eventually died in a plane crash in 1970. Average earnings in America peaked soon after that, and they've lagged productivity ever since as companies focused on shareholder value. Ruther's two decades as leader of the United Auto Workers, from 1946 to his death, 
correlates almost precisely with the apotheosis of American labor. You know, a few years from now, they'll be bragging about this, just as they brag about the pension plans they didn't want to give us, just as they brag about the other things they gave us at the bargaining table. John, there's a lot of nostalgia for that Ruther era from Joe Biden and from people around him. He talks about the time when unions were great and how much better life was for Americans then. But it feels, to me at least, pretty unrealistic that that could come back. Yeah, I can understand why he has that sort of nostalgia, right? Biden himself is very pro-labor. He's had strong union support throughout throughout his career. And I think most people want a world in which wages rise, right? The idea that someone can work full-time and still live in poverty is sort of anathema to not just the American dream, but to what we think of as decent and proper. But my concern is that this nostalgia doesn't quite fit, right? The labor market doesn't look like that. It's much more fluid. People go from job to job a lot more. So I fear that, especially on the policy side for Democrats, that there's too much emphasis on unions as unions, as tied to employers, and too little in thinking about how to raise wages structurally, given that people are going to move around a lot more than they have in the past. Zanny, how achievable do you think that sort of Biden dream of bringing back a 1960s-style labour market is? Well, I think you have to differentiate between a labour market that is a great one for workers and a labour market that is a 1960s one. And the first is, I think, achievable and is indeed happening. We are, I think, in an era after a couple of decades of where, where capital was favoured relative to labour. I think we are, in a way, now in an era where it is a much better time for labour. It was happening before the pandemic. Wages were rising across the board, but particularly for people with less skills. That's now happening in spades. And the environment, the policy environment, the Biden administration policy environment is very, very pro-labour. What worries me, John, I think you're totally right, Fasman, that this is an administration that hankers to a kind of union-based view of what a pro-labour economy is. The unions are, are incredibly influential in the administration, sound it out and, and play a big, big role. And my concern about that is that you mistake what is a 21st century pro-worker environment with returning to the 1960s. And President Biden is absolutely the sort of, you know, that's the world that he knows well, that's the America he knows well. To be honest, he's not particularly different to his predecessor in that sense, right. a, you know, a kind of glorifying of the mid 20th century America and, and how wonderful that was. And it's the kind of lunch pail kind of America. It's 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 good jobs, which are sort of manual labor jobs. And a lot of the policy, if you look at the infrastructure policy, the kind of focus on creating union jobs, the Buy America policy, it's all going back to that world. And I worry that if there is too much focus on that, then you end up having basically a kind of soft protectionism. You have you ossify the American economy, whereas what you really need, want is to have a absolutely a pro-worker policy, but one that is focused on providing the opportunities and the support for a much more flexible, much more tech-based 21st century economy. So I really applaud the sentiment, but I worry that the, the kind of way they're trying to do it, which is by hearkening back, is the wrong way. Let me pick up on something you said. I think you raised a a really good point, which is the shift toward labor was happening before the pandemic. What was it that drove that shift? Was it policy? Is it just cyclical? And if it is just cyclical, then then what does that suggest the proper policy response should be? Well, it was the labor market was running very hot. 
very hard. Remember, unemployment was incredibly low. Mm-hmm. It was at 50-year lows. And labor markets work that way. Right? When, when there's very, very low unemployment, you have to pay your workers more. Mm-hmm. And so it was a function of you know, loose monetary policy, a long recovery. It had started under the Obama administration. It was you know, given a, a little a boost by the Trump tax cuts. It was a booming economy. And there's, there's really no better way to help everybody in the economy than a booming economy. And that was happening before the pandemic. In terms of sort of structural shifts, my hunch is that a lot of the concern about the gloom about automation, you know, robots taking everybody's jobs, is not happening in the way that the most pessimistic people predicted. And that actually, even before the pandemic, technology was helping quite a lot of workers. And I think one of the things, and we've we've talked about this, that we may be seeing now in the kind of post-pandemic restructuring is that there's more use of technology helping workers. But it is also a policy shift. There's no doubt that the environment is much more pro-worker. And that makes a big difference. Mm. All right, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to think about the political implications of all of this a bit more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Zanny, you've been catching up with all kinds of people in New York and Washington this week, and you kindly recorded one of those conversations for the podcast. Tell us a bit about Jason Furman. So Jason Furman is now a professor at Harvard University, but he was uh, one of um, President Obama's chief advisors. He was chief advisor on the Obama campaign. He worked earlier in the Clinton administration. He is a, a stalwart of Democrat economic policymaking, and he was in the White House as the U.S. economy went through and then came out of the 2008 financial crisis. And therefore, he has kind of been at the coalface of looking at what recoveries are like. And so I wanted to get a sense from him of why this recovery was different, what he made of it, and also whether he thinks everything has changed. I don't know. I tend to think in the moment, we always think it's going to be bigger. The day after 9-11, a lot of people thought they'd never get on an airplane again. And Within a month, it was sort of a bit more of a hassle taking your shoes off, but otherwise you were flying just like you did before. There'll certainly be more remote work and the like. If I had to predict my own life, I think I'll be getting on airplanes just as much and I'll be on way more Zoom. So I'll end up in some sense either more productive if you think being on a Zoom with someone is productive <laughs> or less productive if you think all oh, that's a waste of time, uh, but it won't change my travel nearly as much as it should. And is it therefore an era that is going to be an era that is particularly good for workers? I mean, for the last few decades, it's been slow recoveries. It's been a shift towards capital away from workers. It's been a tough time to be an ordinary worker in the United States. Is that now changing and changing for good? I hope so. And thinking was changing prior to the pandemic. In the United States, we had increasingly tight labor markets. We had pretty good real wage growth. We had especially good real wage growth at the bottom of the income distribution. 
some of the ideas around austerity and overly tight monetary policy were falling increasingly out of fashion. And there's been a correction. Correction is probably an, an understatement for what's happening. I mean, a transformational shift in the scale of ambition of policy. You've said, I think, that the American Rescue Plan was definitely, quote, too big for the moment. Your colleague, uh, Larry Summers, I think, is, is held back less. He's called it the least responsible macro policy in 40 years. How reckless is it? The American Rescue Plan is bigger than you would have done if you were sitting down as a nerdy, wonky person from scratch, figuring out what the economy needed either to fill an output gap or to provide relief. Some of the money, like money for states, is going to be used for pretty low quality things, but it's going to spend out over several years. So it's not going to cause overheating and inflation. I think the downsides of the size are there, but not particularly huge. I think more importantly, it also was just a thing of the moment. I mean, I think of this like Midsummer's Night Dream where everyone ends up with strange drugs running around after the wrong people all night long, um, but then they wake up in the morning and they all marry the people they're supposed to. And so fiscal policy took 12 months off. It did all sorts of crazy things in those 12 months. And I think it's going to return, you know, maybe even to more sanity than it should going forward once we're beyond the pandemic. Uh, yeah, but if I think if you run around and take a lot of drugs all night, most people have a hangover the next morning. So there is a, a, a kind of problem here and a challenge, which is there are risks. And the one that obviously people are focusing on most right now is the risk of inflation. And I, I think most economists are kind of relatively sanguine that we're not going to suddenly see a return to the 1970s. But what surprises me is how sort of center-left economists are remarkably sanguine about the impact of inflation on people lower down the income stream. Inflation is incredibly regressive if, if, if wages don't keep up with prices. And isn't that a risk now? The two risks of inflation are, one, that the Fed overcorrects and you end up with a recession, and two, that inflation is associated with lower real wages. We might get 4.5% inflation in the United States this year. That's completely plausible. I think 3% again next year is completely plausible. One possibility is nominal wages go up even faster. If that's true, it's good news for workers, but it also means more of the price and wage pressure will persist. If it doesn't pass through to wages, then you could, you know, set back real wage growth by a year or two or three, which is which is quite a lot. And yeah, I don't I don't think is is trivial. I mean, that sounds like a pretty grim choice. Either you're hit because inflation is higher than wages increase, in which case people are worse off, or wages keep pace, but then you start going into a wage price spiral. Neither of those sounds great. Neither of those sound great. I said those are the two uh, bad scenarios. For me, I see continued fiscal support. There's already 3 or 4% of GDP of fiscal stimulus next year in train. Nothing new needs to pass for that to happen. And continued monetary stimulus, all the excess saving people have. So I see continued inflationary pressures. That's not what the forecasting community sees. That's not what the bond market sees. There have been a set of very powerful forces that have kept inflation below 2%. So maybe I'll be wrong and this will be one year of reopening pains and you know back to 2% inflation next year. So will we look back at this uh, as a moment where a new era of sustainable growth, 
bigger share of the pie goes to workers, stronger safety net, changes the shift in America, but doesn't change the overall dynamism of the economy? Or is it the beginning of a reckless period of macroeconomic, out of control, spending, big government kind of worrying? I am decently worried, but still would put most of my money on something closer to your happier scenario. I mean, it's an amazing thing that a year ago we had 15% unemployment, and now we're talking about output being above its pre-pandemic trend by the end of this year, that most people who want jobs are going to be able to have them. And just creating this disconnect between GDP went way down but disposable personal income went up will mean in some ways I think this will be a model for um, how to respond. Now, if we end up with really runaway inflation and all those problems, that won't be the case. I think in some ways it'll be sad that it will be the last 500 billion of the 5 trillion we spent that tarnished the whole enterprise. But big picture, I think this will be a, a remarkable economic recovery compared to the ones we've seen in the past. So a model of how to respond and, and Bidenism will become the new economic orthodoxy for the rest of us. I don't know that every aspect of it will, but I think certainly on a very vigorous, large-scale government response can make things better. There'll probably be more evidence for that than against it. But again, I just continue to be very nervous that we went just a little bit too far and jeopardized that a little bit more than we needed to. Zanny, I hate to bring things back to earth after all this talk of hallucinogenic midsummer parties, but let's talk about inflation. How worried should we be? I mean, you said earlier on that you're not a great inflation hawk. And also, I guess a subsequent or subsidiary question, which is how do we talk about inflation, given that the more we talk about inflation, the more that raises inflation expectations. When inflation expectations get set, then they're hard to dislodge. I mean, this whole subject is tricky, right? It is tricky, but what's striking right now, uh, as as Jason Furman uh, said, is that the most economists are really not that worried about it. And I guess I'm kind of pretty much where he is, which is probably more worried than most, indeed more worried actually than some of my colleagues, um, but not, you know, it doesn't keep me up at night. I do think that when you throw as much stimulus money, uh, as much spending at the economy as the Biden administration is doing on top of what happened from the Trump administration. This is a scale of of sort of fiscal boost that we have just not seen in in recent history. And that coupled with the kinds of supply shortages that we've seen, which may prove to be temporary, uh, I think yields high. Well, we're already seeing it, right? Inflation is, is, is rising fast. For me, the worry is it stays higher for longer. And then, as you say, People start expecting higher inflation. And then it's going to be a, a very tough deal. What will what it will all depend on is whether the Federal Reserve takes that proverbial punch bowl away and tightens. And, and there's been a kerfuffle in bond markets in recent days as the, the Fed intimated that it might tighten earlier than people expected. The question is, will it take that punch bowl away fast enough? And, and if it does, it's going to be a, a sort of painful adjustment. But then you don't need to worry about inflation getting sort of out of control. 
The politics of all this are interesting as well, aren't they? Because, I mean, clearly the Biden administration and Democrats are thinking going into the midterms next year, midterms typically tough for the president's party. We'd like the economy to be running hot. And as Jason Furman said, perhaps the optimal economic policy would have been to do something slightly less. But because of the way that fiscal stimulus, at least, is made in America, Congress gets a one shot once a year to do things through a big reconciliation bill. All sorts of things get lumped in there. You know, this is not an optimal way to go about setting policy, right? There's two things here. This, how, what's the overall size of the amount of money you pump into the economy? And, and then secondly, what do you spend the money on or what taxes do you cut? And I think you know, I, I would agree with Jason and we, we've, we wrote a cover article on this and many leaders saying that the size of the overall stimulus was, was unnecessarily big and a very big gamble. I also worry, and this depends a bit, of course, on what happens with the infrastructure bill and all of the other Biden priorities that haven't been passed yet. But if nothing else is passed, then a whole ton of money will have been spent on quite short term things and not on the big structural priorities, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the need to you know, make the move to a greener economy, all of those underlying requirements that we all agree the US economy needs. And, and just to be clear, I'm not against investing in that stuff. I think the US absolutely needs to spend that and and that and it's big and bold and it's got it's trillions. But what seems to have happened so far is that I'm no political strategist so I understand the the logic perhaps of doing this but by going so big and doing the sort of relatively sugar high stuff first the risk is that you end up not having spent the money on the long-term priorities. Yeah, the long-term priorities are a harder sell, right? There's less obvious gain for them for politicians. But given that the economy is, is humming along, midterms are about a year away, how do Republicans run against a booming economy? But it's also, in what way is the economy humming along? Yeah. If, if the economy is humming along, but prices of, you know, lumber, cars, you know, house prices, everything is rising fast, and the, and the narrative becomes out-of-control price increases, then... Even with the economy humming along, there's a downside there. Yeah. yeah, I'm optimistic that some of these supply chain problems are temporary and will get fixed. I mean, again, this is I feel like I've got lots of anecdata and a few actual numbers this week. But I was talking to a friend yesterday who's going to Montana for the summer with his family and they can work. You know, the parents can work there on Zoom. The kids can go into a camp. But it's impossible to rent a hire car in Montana because during the pandemic um, last year, a lot of the hire companies sold off their stock because they had you know, terrible cash flows. And so they don't have any cars. They can't get hold of new cars because of the shortages there. And so apparently people are renting U-Hauls so they can just drive their families around in parts of the West. That is a real supply crunch, but it feels like that ought to get straightened out. Quite a lot of this is clearly temporary, but but and I sound I feel like the sort of Grinch at Christmas here. I keep coming with the downbeat <laughs> That's stuff. Our job. But, but 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 there's a couple of longer term things that worry me. One is the scale of the increase in renewable energy, that shift that the Biden administration wants to do, immensely laudable, is itself going to have huge supply side consequences. And the second is the international environment and the whole question of China policy and the US decoupling potentially from China and from global supply chains. If that continues, we will, we potentially are unpicking the kind of fabric of the global supply chains, which means that some of this can last longer. So if you look at what's been happening in chips, 
has affected the production of cars. You know, those kind of deeper things could still be there. So, look, I'm with you. And I'm also noticing that you have a lot of anecdotal evidence of your friends going to you know beautiful places in the US. I wonder if you're sending me a message here. But it, it is, it's much of this is temporary. But it, you know, inflation is one of those things that temp, it can, you know, you say it's temporary, you say it's temporary, and then suddenly people are expecting more of it. And suddenly you do have a problem on your hands. At what point do we have that problem? I mean, Jason mentioned that he would not be worried by 4% inflation for a year, by 3.5% inflation. I mean, I don't want to make you pick a number in time, but could you pick a number in time? No, I'm not going to pick a number in time. I, I The key thing is when people start expecting higher inflation. Yeah. When inflation expectations, as economists call them, get unanchored. And we we haven't had that in decades. Yeah. We have got so used to low inflation. And, and just to be clear, because people, your listeners are going to think that I'm a complete inflation nut. I'm really not. I am not worried about inflation getting out of control immediately. But I am struck that the preponderance of economists don't worry about it at all. And that that gives me pause. So, Zanny, I'm going to ask you the question that you asked Jason. We've had this big disruption. Lots of changes seem to be underway in the US economy. How permanent do you think these changes are? Some of them are clearly temporary. You know, the, the unemployment insurance is going to end, you know, in a few months, the economy is going to kind of work through many of the supply shortages, etc, etc. But I actually do think that a few fundamental things have changed. I think if you just look at the way we are, you know, we are not going to go back to producing the economist in the way we did before the pandemic. Our work patterns have changed. And and I know you're on your way to Montana. They, I'm, I'm joking, dear listener. I'd love to. I was to say pay rise and relocation to Montana sounds ideal. No, but you are, you're, I'm afraid, not sure that either of those will be in the offing. But, but I do think the way we work has changed. And that is true across businesses, across and the way families are thinking about things has changed. How fundamental it is, how deep it is, um, we'll see. But I think that coupled with a very clearly pro-worker and pro-supporting worker um, administration has changed things in America. And my worry is that just as they may go overboard in the scale of stimulus, they go overboard in what they think is the way to help American workers and try and recreate an economy that is that of half a century ago. So there are warning signs, but underneath it, I think something fundamental has shifted. And the challenge will be to really grab that and make a more sustainable, vibrant, productive US economy. And it's clearly possible. This is an opportunity. The question is, is it, are they grabbing it the right way, not going too far in one direction? But potentially, I think we could be back here in two, three years and look back and say, actually, this was this was an extraordinary, um, as Jason Furman said, moment grabbed and sort of paradigm shift in economic policy. Now, Zani, as you may or may not know, this point in the show is quiz time. And I, I can see you've got your cup of coffee, which is going to be necessary because of John Fasman's formidable quiz powers. One of the features of the recovery has been the high price of lumber. The Economist devoted several inches to lumber prices back in September 1843. We were cross about a new treaty between Britain and America. Missed opportunity to open up trade, we said. The accord settled a dispute over the timber-rich territory between Canada and the state of Maine. The trunks of tall pine trees lining the St John River were vital to Britain's military dominance. What were they used for? Oh my goodness! You know this 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 moment was the moment I almost didn't come and do this show. It's the most intimidating and terrifying thing. I, were they used for they, shipbuilding? Shipbuilding, can, yeah, canal building, or ships? 
They were used for ships' masts. I think you both get a point for that. That's that's impressive. The so-called Aristoc War began as a dispute between lumbermen. Main militiamen used effigies of Queen Victoria for target practice. But conflict was averted before anyone died in battle. It's also known as the Pork and Beans War because of the local diet. Beans are one of the so-called three sisters of Native American agriculture, traditionally grown alongside which two other staples? Corn and squash. Oh my God, this was that was a first moment. Yeah. You know, how can one compete with that? <laughs> Even by his standards, that was fast. The three crops grow well together in the poor, sandy soil of New England. The three sisters system also yields more calories and protein than growing the three crops separately. So there you go. Zanny, one point for you, two points for John. You performed admirably. Please come back and do this again. I would love to. It was great joining you. This was fun. Well, thank you, Zanny. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Thanks to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review so we can convince Zanny to let us keep doing this. If you want to get in touch on email, the address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.